Hello, test. One, two, three, four. Hello, test. The horseshoe crabs are mating on Staten Island. I just received the information, and they tell me that the beaches in that area are just covered with sickening, incredible horseshoe crab sex orgies. Would you please, so we're testing here. Hello, one, two, three, four. Hello, test. Very good. Hello, test. One, two, three. Bring it up big there. Let's hear it all the way. Shepard, your show is a lot of garbage. Signed a hard hat. Hi, George. We're waiting to score. It's spelled garbage, not garbage. 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 uncontrollable public uh, demand here. We have a note, and I'm going to read to you a note here. It says, uh, hey, listen, you know, speaking of Fourth of July, there is a myth, and it is a real myth, around, it's a, particularly in the major cities. You see it in places like uh, Chicago a little bit, but uh, more than that, you see it in this area. There is a myth that fireworks and people celebrating the Fourth of July with fireworks is a thing of the past. I really seriously believe that. A lot of people think that, you know, if you talk about fireworks, you're talking about the good old days. And immediately you get 500 letters from uh, elderly gentlemen who write uh, on thumb-printed postcards, you know, from some uh, uh, railroad uh, YMCA outside of Trenton. Ah, it's good to hear about somebody talking about the good old days. Why, I remember. And on and on, you know, ad nauseum. But uh, nevertheless... Uh, the uh, the thing that I learned, I, I just came back here a couple of weeks ago from a trip out to, uh, well, we were in Colorado and in Wyoming, places like that, uh, about to film a television show out there. And every place you went, they had these big stands that were, you know, just sitting there. I couldn't believe it. Right back of the Howard Johnson, there's a big fireworks stand. And this is well before the 4th of July. It's like June. And cars were stopping, and people were buying fireworks the way people here in the East go in and buy, a, oh, you know, a little five-cent package of Kleenex. And, <laughs> I mean, it's fascinating to, to, to see stuff. Like, for example, I was in a gift shop, an elegant gift shop in uh, Cheyenne. Now, it was. It was really an elegant type. It was a little bit like Brentano's here. And, uh, you know, they had the... Uh, uh, like keychains with the platinum steer horns, that kind of stuff, you know, very elegant stuff. And uh, in the middle of it all was a collection right there on the table uh, next to, uh, you know, the Father's Day greeting cards. Uh, the Father's Day was in the future at that time. Uh, was a pile of fireworks that they were selling in a greeting, uh, kind of a gifty shoppy, a good one. And uh, they had, uh, so for example, are you curious what today a... Uh, a major skyrocket goes for, curious today, in uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming. Well, you can get a beautiful skyrocket guaranteed to rise to a minimum of 250 feet for, <laughs> and they come now with a guarantee on it, you know. And uh, that's a pretty good, uh, 
pretty good shot, actually, when you think of it. 250 feet is about the height of a 20-or-so-story building. You know, it's uh, way up there, boy. Yeah. Uh, that costs you $1.79 with instructions on how to, you know, blow up the neighborhood. And it's good, clean fun. And, and everybody out there buys it and shoots this stuff off. It is not a thing of the past. It is a thing of the now. So uh, it's a thing of the past in New York City. But then again, so is ordinary, common, decent life. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, uh, so you can get, you can get uh, technical about that if you want. Here's a note that says, uh, Dear Shepard, it says, um, Mr. Shepard, uh, for the sake of Independence Day, would you please read the story of Ludlow Kissel and the Dago Bomb on your show? He says, Every year I, I listen to that, he says, and, and it's a must for me, and listen to this sad one. It says, Boom! That subterranean urge permits. Sorry, Shepard, I couldn't. Uh, rig up any plastic explosives. He's been, I've been under your phantasmagoric, megalomaniacal influence now for nearly a year. Last July 3rd, I found myself in the midst of a field used for parking cars, gathered together in the traditional confusion of a 4th of July celebration. After the displays, and still uh, quaking in the sheer sensualism of explosives, my 1953 blue Pontiac stalled out, trapped in the middle of all this I decided to try to uh, make the scene with this chick I was with. He says, well, it didn't work out. And I blame your show, because we both got listening to your crummy story about the 4th of July, and forget it, it's a terrible anti-aphrodisiac, your show. So <laughs> he says, tell it again this time when I can actually listen to it. He says, I was in the middle of a, of a racking experience. I was about to strike out. So tonight... Uh, to salute all of you, countless uh, trillions of the great uh, ant-lemming herd of humanity, stretched bumper to bumper all the way out to that garden spot of America, Jones Beach, and, uh, <laughs> yes, indeed, and uh, all the way out to uh, various other places that people are going to on this exciting day of our independence celebration. Gee, there's nothing like spending the 4th of July in Teaneck. Wow. Oh, I'll tell you, I've, I've known guys that just, you know, go out of their bird. I mean, with just shaking with American patriotic experience, eating uh, Eskimo pie bars and all that stuff, and, and uh, burning your hands on uh, punk and things like that. Are there any punks listening to us tonight? We'd like to salute you, too. So uh, would you please bring out a little pro-American music here? Hooray! All right, let's go. Da, 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 da. Hooray, hooray, hooray for the good old U.S. of A. Da, 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 da. All right, now, thank you very much. Keep that in advance. We're going to need that. Fourth of July. It's, it's an exciting moment. And uh, all over this land of ours, guys are shooting off uh, firecrackers and... Uh, and uh, Dago bombs, one thing or another. And by the way, I'm using that term not in any anti-Italian sense at all. It is a it is a it is a it is a generic description of a type of firework, like a, the Irish harp is not anti-Irishman, even though the harp is badly played in many cases. Now I am about to I'm about to read a story from a, uh, a novel that I whipped together uh, after four years of fantastic work. Yeah, I mean it. And if you've ever written one, you know. In 1967, it came out, and uh, it uh, was well-received. I'm delighted to report. And I am going to read the chapter entitled Ludlow Kissel and the Dago Bomb That Struck Back. And uh, <laughs> it originally appeared as a short story in Playboy magazine, so I must give them credit for that, else they'll sue the 
Well, they'll sue me. I almost said something real good. Radio would come alive for that one brief moment there and be totally uh, adult. Ludwell Kissel and the Dago bomb that struck back. Now, I want you all to gather around the radio, sit real close, warm your hands next to the field coil there, and Uncle Wiggly is going to tell you a story. And it's about the 4th of July. And it begins in the contemporary present. I threaded... By the way, this was written in 1966. It was published in 67. You will notice that there is a strong comment throughout the story regarding ecological problems. This was written before there was an interest in ecology. In fact, listen to the opening. I threaded my way through the midtown, the midday sidewalk traffic that eddied and surged over and around the clutter of construction paraphernalia. It was desperately hot. My wash-and-wear suit clung to me like some rancid, scratchy extension of my clammy skin. All around me, New York was busily, roaringly, endlessly rebuilding itself, like some gigantic phoenix arising from the still, red-hot ashes of its dead self. New York's infamous edifice complex blooms mightily in midsummer. The swirls of dust and broken pieces of concrete breathe deep into my lungs as I move through the terrible heat. My mind, as is so often the case these days, was totally blank. I repeat, how many of you had this feeling as you walk along 6th Avenue next to giant machines pounding away as they're building some monstrous hole in the ground? My mind, as is so often the case these days, was totally blank. Sweat trickled in a long, thin, cool line down the knobbles of my backbone and spread out damply along the waistband of my twisted jockey shorts, which were threatening to emasculate me at any moment. My feet moved steadily to the rhythm of a colossal diesel engine pounding insanely off my port bow. All around us, reaching high to the copper heavens, the stainless steel and aluminum green glass cliffs of partly completed and already eroding towers acted as colossal baffles, amplifying the subterranean reverberations of construction almost beyond endurance. New York's summer festival was in full swing, and I was a celebrant. I had reached perhaps the midpoint of the plank ladder, breathing shallowly of the rising clouds of pulverized cement dust and carbon monoxide fumes, a subtle mixture that forms one of the more insidious anesthetics yet devised, dulling the senses clouding the soul when it happened. It was more felt at first than heard. A long, low, gurgling sensation pushing up suddenly from the gut and exploding in the, bla- the brain like some great comber of an ancient sea on a lost, forgotten beach. Kaboom! For a split second... The great sound hung in midair, and then unthinkingly, my ancient G.I. reflexes working magically and smoothly, I hurled myself to the clapboard, digging in as I landed. The bombardment had begun. I clung to the earth, waiting for the second round of the bracket, which should come, I hastily calculated, off to my right. Suddenly I became aware of an insistent rapping on the back of my neck as an elderly crane-like citizen behind me croaked, Get up, you bum. If you're going to sleep on a sidewalk, at least find a doorway, you soak. He stepped over me, and sheepishly I regained my feet. 
Up and down the line, I saw other ex-GIs brushing themselves off and once again moving forward in the unending stream of 20th century man bound for God knows where. My mind raced as I peered through the haze of the great canyon of excavation that lay just beyond the barricades. And then I could smell it. An acrid, faint, delicious, familiar, naggingly pleasant scent. Dynamite. The real thing. Minutes later, I sat pensively at a tiny corner table of Les Miserables, waiting for my luncheon date to arrive and vaguely conscious of a difficult-to-define sense of nostalgic pleasure and euphoria. Could it be the bloody Charlie I was drinking? No, I'd barely touched it. As I idly and comfortingly fingered the smooth, sleek surface of my diner's club card, my protection against the world, the way a gunfighter of old must have absently fondled his Smith & Wesson 38. I tried to analyze my sudden sense of warmth and well-being. It had started immediately after the blasting operation at the construction site. Could there be a connection? No man wants to admit that he is a secret atom bomb fan. So I hastily rejected that transient thought. Yet somehow I could not deny that the tiny whiff of blue smoke had awakened an ancient memory, some long, dormant pleasure. I absently munched one of the new no-cal composition cashew nuts, which are featured at the Bois, as I raked my memory for a clue. The pleasant sound of diners' voices mingled with the muzak and the popping of corks, the sizzling of the grill, and the humming of the air conditioning lulled me as the bloody Charlie began its soothing work. Out of the din, voices and sounds of the past emerged, dripping ooze and slime like some ancient creatures unearthed from long-sealed caverns. Dynamite. Let's admit it. There are few sounds more soul-satisfying, more frightening, more exciting than an explosion. Explosions of one kind or another have always been part of great folk celebrations from weddings to wars. I sipped my drink and mused on the first time that I had heard that primal roar of exploding black powder. And then it hit me. My God! Tomorrow is the 4th of July. The 4th of July. It had crept up on tiny cat's feet on the scale of the calendar, unnoticed, unsung, unbombarded. It was then that I knew where those pleasant feelings of mingled regret and exhilaration that we call nostalgia had come from. Yes, in just a few hours it would be the glorious fourth. And here I was, without so much as a sparkler to my name. I ordered another drink and settled down comfortably into my soft, eider-down bed of remembrances of things past. There are times when you just have to let it go. As I idly mulled the twin olives of my classical bloody Charlie, the northern Indiana landscape of the late Depression era began to take form, shadowy and persistent, amid the green and gold bottles behind the mirrored bar directly ahead of me. The blackened stumps, snaggletoothed and primal of the steel mills and the oil refineries lay etched against the hazy gray-green horizon of the July skies of the Great Lakes. Somewhere off in the distance, the construction crew set off another dull, thumping blast that jiggled the silverware on my table. And then it all came back. 
dynamite, heat, and excitement were all intermingled in that Fourth of July ritual that's long since departed. Where is there... What is there about a solid, molar-rattling explosion that sets the blood tingling and brings the roses to the cheeks? There are muddled-headed souls who will tell you over and over that man is basically a peaceful, quiet creature. There are people who really believe that, destined ultimately to while away his golden days, strumming lutes, penning odes, watching birds. I have never yet witnessed a turtle preparing to ignite the portentous fuse of a cherry bomb. Nope. It remained for man to concoct black powder from the innocent elements of the earth and ultimately to split the atom, all in pursuit of that healing bomb, the thundering report. Kaboom. And nowhere was this particular pleasure more honored and indulged than in the mill towns of northern Indiana. Even today, there are countless veterans of these fireworks barrages, hearing partly gone, a high, thin, singing sound in the cranium, sporting stunted, stubbly eyebrows, vaguely jumpy from continual borderline shell shock, who search in vain for the fireworks stand to assuage their deep hunger for the celebrating concussion, the better to honor our glorious American past. The fireworks stand. Even setting the words down, stark and simple on the page, causes my hand to tremble and my brow to dampen in delicious fear. The sort of fear that only a kid who has lit a five-incher under a carnation milk can and has hurled himself prone upon the earth awaiting the end can know. Even the look of classical fireworks was magnificent. The five-incher, hard, cool, rock-like cylinder of sinister jade green. Its vicious red fuse, aggressive, and yet quietly cradled in the palm of the hand is an experience once known, never forgotten. The cherry bomb. Ah, what pristine geometric tensile beauty. A perfect orb, brilliant carmine red, packed chock-a-block with latent terror and destruction. The torpedo, an instrument, malevolent and yet subtly complex, designed for hand-to-hand celebration. Many a grown man today carries in his shins a peppering of tiny, round pebbles buried deep in the flesh from too close familiarity with the roaring torpedo, a shrapnel victim of the glorious fourth. For the uninitiated, I at this point must explain that the torpedo was perhaps an inch high, a half inch in circumference, symbolically striped in the colors of our country, made to be hurled against a brick wall or a passing Oldsmobile. A contact weapon of singular violence that sent its igniters, tiny rock fragments showering over an area 50 yards or more. The pinwheel, an expensive device, an expensive device largely used for flamboyant show and yet responsible for some of the major conflagrations of the past. Whole blocks, and indeed in some cases entire towns, disappeared under the roaring flames to the applause of the multitude. I, I speak with more than the average authority on these matters since my old man, a genuinely dedicated fireworks maniac, owned and operated a fireworks stand every year during my larval stages. He was a pusher. The depression lay over the land like a great numbing blanket of restlessness and frustration, but on the 4th, the sky would be filled with skyrockets, 
booming aerial bombs and hand grenades because nobody had anything else to do in those days. They could scratch, they could make beer, or just stand around. Once in a while, they'd go down to the roundhouse and see if they could pick up an extra day somewhere, but mostly they'd just sit on the porch, chew tobacco, and spit. That's what the Depression was. One of the good things about the Depression, and why a lot of people look back on it now with a kind of nutty nostalgia, is because nobody made it in the Depression. So nobody had a sense of guilt. Goofing off was just a natural thing to do. And in the Depression, nobody did anything. It was a license to fool around. And they fooled around in big ways. I remember guys sitting on their front porch tossing dynamite. I mean blasting dynamite. Real dynamite. Out on the streets just for kicks. Northern Indiana is full of primeval types who've drifted up from the restless hills of Kentucky and the gulches of Tennessee, bringing with them suitcases of dynamite saved over from the time Grandpa blew up the stumps on the back 40. And they brought it to the city with them, because you never can tell. And since they never had any money for fireworks, it was only one thing to do. And they did it. They would sit on their porch on a quiet, hot 4th of July, rocking back and forth on the swing, breaking dynamite sticks, which come about six inches long, into sizes approximating a green two-incher like busting off a chunk of Baby Ruth candy bar. Old Dad, his cigar clamped in his teeth, would scotch tape a little fuse to the end, raise it with suitable flourishes to the cigar butt end, hold it aloft for a split second, flip it back by the garage, and then dive for the floor. Kaboom! Yep, old Roof is celebrating his ancient heritage. Crockery, would crash for blocks around. Old ladies would be hurled into the snowball bushes, but no one seemed to care. After all, the fourth is the fourth. And there would be a slight delay as Roof fused another nuclear bomb, and then, boom! Tin cups would rattle for miles around. Windows shatter and smash. Yes, friends, dynamite was the milk of life to the average hillbilly of the day. He celebrated with it, feuded with it, and fished with it. The sporting instinct runs strong in the hills. When the fishing season would open, the river would literally be a boil with TNT. Boom! An underwater explosion, incidentally, has its own peculiar excitement. A kind of long, drawn-out subterranean gurgle. And then the air for miles around would be filled with flying catfish. A thunder cloud of sunfish drifting over the county for 20 minutes or more. Hundreds of the sporting elite would be darting around fielding them in bushel baskets. Sport. And speaking of the big sports, this is WOR New York. The more civilized celebrants, however, on the 4th, shot their relief check in one orgy of fireworks buying. Fireworks came in a number of exotically lethal varieties. Among them, the classical Dago bomb. This was never construed as an anti-Italian name, being more pro than anything else. The Dago bomb was the ne plus ultra of the fireworks world, a true thing, a beauty and symmetry. It came in several sizes, four to be exact, the 5-inch, the 8-inch, the 10-inch, and the sure death. In more effete circles, it was known as an aerial bomb, but among the real fireworks fans, it was just the Dago heister. 
It actually looked like those giant, non-existent firecrackers that show up in cartoons. You've seen them in cartoons, those big, huge things that don't really exist in life, but the Dagobah looks like one of those, a red, white, and blue tube with a wooden base stained dark green, a long red fuse, and the instructions printed on the bottom. I quote, Place upright in a clear, unobstructed area. After igniting, stand well back. Not recommended for children. The manufacturer assumes absolutely no responsibility for this device. End of quote. Theoretically, this infernal machine was to be lit by an expert hand. It would then explode with the first or minor explosion, just a little, which would propel an aerial charge of pure white TNT into the ambient air, theoretically vertical, for several hundred feet. And then, devastation. Not once, but several times, depending on the size of the Dago bomb in question. And it was not cheap. The smallest going for a half a buck, and the largest for around three dollars, which in the days of the Depression was a capital investment in destruction. The legends surrounding this mysterious weapon are countless. The mere sight of one of the larger specimens on the shelves of a fireworks stand sent waves of fear and nervous excitement to the sparkler buyers. It was truly the big time. The big time in the fireworks world. And it was a Dago bomb that played a key role in the legend that was Ludlow Kissel. Would you please give me a little American music, please? The Legend of Ludlow Kissel. A pure American legend. As pure as the legend of Captain Ahab. As the legend of those great men who seeded the West. Ludlow Kissel had found his true medium in the Depression itself. Kissel worked in idleness the way other artists worked in clay or marble. God only knows what would have happened to him had there not been a Depression. He was a true child of his time. He was also a magnificent souse. The word alcoholic had not yet come into common usage, at least not in the steel towns of Indiana. Nor were there any lurking Freudian fears or explanations for the classical appetite for potage that Kissel nourished. He was a drunk. He knew it. He just liked the stuff. He glommed onto it wherever and whenever the occasion demanded. And if the store-bought variety of lightning was not available, he concocted his own using raisins, apricots, Fleischmann's yeast, molasses, and dead flies. Nominally, Kissel worked in the roundhouse. And for over 30 years, he had been on the extra board, being called only in extreme emergencies, which occurred roughly once every month or so. He invariably celebrated a day of work by holding up in the Bluebird Tavern for perhaps a week, and then would return home, propelling himself painfully forward on one foot and one knee. He was compensating for a tilted horizon. The sound of Kissel crawling up the gravel driveway next to his house was a familiar one, and it took him sometimes upwards of three hours to make it from the street to the back porch, crawling up the hill in the driveway. At 3 a.m., lying in my dark bedroom, it was kind of 
comforting to hear old man Kissel struggling up the steps of the back porch, inching painfully, step by step, thump, pop, one, long pause, thump, two, longer pause, thump, he's made three in a row now, three steps in a row, split second pause, he's back at the bottom again. You can lie in bed and hear him struggling up the steps, up three steps, down five. Many's the time I've slipped off to sleep with this familiar sound of indomitable human endeavor battling over overwhelming odds. Kissel trying to make the kitchen door. And then finally, the voice of Mrs. Kissel, a large flower print aproned lady who read true romances voraciously. She would call out, Watch the steps, Lud. They're tricky. She loved him. Kissel, one-fourth of July, played a leading role in a patriotic tableau, which is even today spoken of in hushed reverential tones in the area. It was a particularly steamy, yeasty, hellish July. The houseflies clung to the screen doors, and the mosquitoes hummed in great whirling clouds in the poplar trees. It was in such weather that Mr. Kissel reached his apogee. He was not a winter souse. There was something about the birds and the bees and the hot sun that set off a spark in Kissel's blood and stoked an insatiable search and thirst for the, the healing grape. His stocky, overall figure reading through the beautiful twilight, leaving a wake of flickering fireflies, was as much a part of the summer landscape as the full golden moon. Parishioners, sprinkling their lawns and snowball bushes, would nod familiar to him, as he wove through the fine spray of their brass nozzles, blind drunk. The 4th in July, this, the 4th in question, dawned hot and jungle-like with an overhang of black, lacy storm clouds. In fact, a few warm, immense drops sprinkled down through the dawn haze. I know, because I was up and ready for action. Few kids slept late on the 4th. Even as the stars were disappearing and the sun was edging out over the lake, the first distant cherry bombs cracked the stillness. Off in the distance. And the first angry old ladies dialed the police. Carbide cannons, which had gathered dust in basements for a year, roared out, greeting the dawn. And by 7 a.m., the first dozen pairs of eyebrows were blackened and singed. And already the wounded were being buttered with unguentine and sent back into the fray. Long lines of overheated Willie's Knights, Essexes, and Pierce Arrows inched towards the beaches. Babies cried. Mothers wept. Husbands swore. Parades fitfully broke out. And the White Sox prepared to battle it out with the big Fourth of July doubleheader with the St. Louis Browns. Futility meeting hopelessness head on. The sun rose higher and higher, and at its zenith blazed down with an intensity of purpose and effectiveness equal to its best work in equatorial Africa. The asphalt shimmered quietly and stuck to the tires and the tennis shoes of the passing parade. Lilac bushes drooped fragrantly, and the cicadas screamed from the cottonwoods. Through it all, the steady rolling barrage of exploding black powder in one form or another paid homage to our war of independence. As the day wore on, 
This barrage grew in intensity because all true fireworks nuts learned from infanthood the art of rationing and husbanding the ammunition for the crucial moment, which always came after dark. Kissel had not made his appearance throughout the long morning and the early afternoon. He was undoubtedly stoking his private furnace in preparation for his gala, which, when it came, turned out to be worth waiting for. Shortly after noon, a few drops of rain sprinkled down, just enough to dampen the shirt and the rose bushes, but not the spirits. Little did we realize we would shortly be the observers of a scene that would be discussed and recounted through the long winter months of years to come. The event became simply, in the legend, Kissel's Dago Bomb. The White Sox and the Brownies had painfully worked their way to the top of the third of the first game, a scoreless tie, of course, when Kissel appeared on the shimmering horizon, weaving spectacularly, and carrying a large paper bag as carefully as a totally committed drunk can. Kissel was about to celebrate the founding of our nation, the nation which had provided such a bounteous life for him and his. At first, no one paid much attention to the struggling figure as it inched its way from lamppost to lamppost, fire plug to fire plug. Little girls burned sparklers on porches, and I was carefully depleting a string of Chinese lady fingers. These are tiny firecrackers with pleated fuses all woven together and are designed for the rich and profligate to fire off simultaneously by simply lighting the main fuse. No kid in his right mind ever did that. But instead, we carefully disengaged fuse by fuse the ladyfingers and fired them off one by one under garbage cans, porches, behind dogs. My mother, at regular intervals, called out from the kitchen window the 4th of July watch cry eternally of all mothers. Be careful. You're going to lose an eye if you're not careful. Of course, this was purely ritualistic was only a minor annoyance. Flick had already suffered a flesh wound of a routine nature. His right hand was swathed in grease-soaked gauze, the result of demonstrating that he could hold a three-inch in his hand when it went off and still survive. He was now back on the scene working as a lefty. In short, it was a fourth like all other fourths, up to the moment that Kissel took his stance. He had disappeared into his house, to prepare for his massive statement of patriotism. Shortly afterward, he reappeared on the front porch and stumbled down the steps carrying in his right hand the biggest Dago bomb that had ever been seen in the neighborhood. It was fantastic. It was a Dago heister of truly awesome stature, being a foot and a half high. Listen carefully. A foot and a half high and a good three inches in diameter. It was the first all-black Dago bomb anyone had ever seen. This point has been argued over many a cold, wintry evening. Some reports have it that Kisso's Dago bomb was not a Dago bomb at all, but some kind of mortar shell. Others maintain that it was indeed a Dago bomb, but of a foreign make, possibly Chinese, as the somber, menacing color was highly unorthodox. Suffice it to say that no one ever really determined just where Kissel obtained the weapon or its true nature, as Kissel himself was lazy 
and hazy, by the way, on most details of his life, and this was no exception. His only comment later, which was never disputed, was, I sure got one. That was a doozy. That's all he'd ever say. When Kissel emerged from his front door and came down the steps carrying his work of the devil, the neighborhood almost magically knew something big was about to happen. Sparklers flickered out. Kids ran through vacant lots and over driveways. Heads appeared at windows. Crowds gathered. Kissel, with that peculiar deliberateness of the perpetually fog-bound, laboriously prepared to detonate his black beauty. He placed it dead in the center of the concrete road and stood back to survey the scene, weaving slightly as he worked. The crowd drew back and watched silently, excitement hanging over the multitude like a thin blue haze. Fireworks of that magnitude rarely were seen and command instant respect. The ebony monster stood bolt upright, silent, with a cool quality, that cool quality of the truly lethal, understated, but potent. Shimmering waves of heat caused the scene to take on a strange, unreal, flickering quality. The neighborhood fell silent, and only the dull mutterings of distant fire barrages broke the stillness. A few errant drops of tepid rain sprinkled the concrete as we watched. Kissel, at stage center, struggled to find a match the way drunks invariably do, going through pocket after pocket, fumblingly, maddeningly, and finding only pencil stubs and brass keys. It seemed to go on forever, until someone finally darted out of the crowd and handed him a match. The crowd applauded and shifted and waited. Finally, Kissel struck his match, which instantly went out. He struck another. It, too, flickered and died. Drunks are always doing that kind of stuff. Another and another. There was, I might add, a slight breeze which puffed fitfully in from the northwest. The audience grew restive, waited. Kissel struggling, match after match. Suddenly, out of the crowd, a kid darted, an experienced detonator of high explosive of all sorts, who shoved into Kissel's palsied hand a stick of briskly smoldering punk, which did not go out handed it to Kissel and said, here. Kissel, thinking at first that he had been given a cigar, gazed at it numbly for a moment or two, and then dimly perceived that here was the means of lighting the fuse of the colossal black Dago bomb. He reached down, touched it to the tip of the fuse. The crowd retreated, and with the inevitability of Greek drama, the tragedy began. The fuse was lit. Immediately, the assemblage rolled back in a mighty wave, turned and waited while Kissel still struggled trying to light it. And it's already been lit. The crowd hollered, Kissel, for God's sakes, it's lit! Kissel raised his head, questioning, and said, What's lit? The crowd roared. The ominous hiss continued. Kissel returned to his fight, again touching punk the fuse, which was already lit. And this time, the fuse, in its unpredictable way, began to hiss frantically faster and faster. The crowd, seeing this unbelievable catastrophe unreeling before its eyes to a man, hit the dirt. Those on the fringes dug into the snowball bushes. Others simply moaned piteously and dug into the concrete. It was good training, as later events turned out, for many of them. The Dago bomb lay on its side. He'd knocked it over. The ugly snout pointing towards the houses which lay across the lawns 200 feet away. Cooler members of the crowd shouted in to those in the houses, Look out! It's coming! Close your windows! 
the fuse sputtered on. Kissel reeled around happily, applauding it. The crowd hollered, Get down, Kissel, you're going to get killed! Kissel fled, fell over backward and lay flattened out in the concrete, waiting for the call of his maker, and then it happened. Then it happened. There are events which lend themselves readily to the descriptive phrase, friends, the events, the words of pen or tongue. This Dago bomb was designed to send its aerial charge at least 500 feet in the air. For instant, for a moment or two, we were not aware of what sort of aerial charge it would deliver. Just a... The cartridge seemed abnormally large as it emerged from the black maw of Kissel's Folly, skimmed over the sidewalk, parting the spectators like the Red Sea, over the lawn, over the driveway with a sharp audible click, a whistle, and under Kissel's front porch. For a long, pendulous moment, the universe stood still, fingernails clawed into earth, heads burrowed into hedges, and then... thunderous explosion rocked the neighborhood. The slats of Kissel's porch bellied outward. The floor tilted downward instantly. A great yellow swirling cloud of dust rose over the lilac bushes. A second or two passed as an eternity. And then another, a louder detonation thundered over the landscape. Kaboom! This time it caved in the rose trellis of the house next door to Kissel's. The crowd heaved and dug deeper as two more giant explosions. Kaboom! Kaboom! Those two went off under Mr. Strickland's Pontiac. A heavy cloud of dust swirled for a moment. still, except for the pattering of the quiet raindrops. Kissel slowly pulled himself to his knees and made his statement, which even today is part of the great legend. My God, what a doozy. That's all he said. Kissel had said it for all of us. As the crowd slowly got to its feet amid the quiet tinkling of glass and the heavy, sensual smell of oxidized dynamite, they were aware that they had been witness to history. A little Fourth of July music, please. Just a So today we salute Ludlow Kissel, wherever he might be, in search of passion, wherever he is. The Ludlow Kissel's everywhere. Bring it up, baby. Hooray for the U.S. of A. Ten minutes? Wow, we got ten minutes. Well, that's great. <laughs> now, that is the story of Ludlow Kissel. And uh, you want to hear a little more of the story? It's just a little bit more of it. Uh, a kind of postscript that added to that story. And incidentally, the story of Ludlow Kissel, I, I don't imagine, of all the uh, short stories, let's see, I've had something like 30 short stories now published 
in Playboy. I doubt whether any story has gotten more response and more continual requests for people and comments about than that particular story. I don't know why. What is there in that story? What is it? Is it is it is it man's <laughs> struggle against the, the eternal fates, or is it you just like to hear about a drunk lighting bombs? Which, <laughs> but but you know that story. I'll, I'll give you a little postscript on that story too. Uh, one of the most fascinating letters that I received. You know, writers uh, don't get. Curiously enough, they don't get very many letters from listeners or readers. They may be read by six, seven, eight, nine, ten million people. And out of all the people who read uh, a, a writer, the number who write to him and tell him about what they think of what he said is infinitesimal. Do you know that, that my editor, for example, at one point edited William Faulkner, and uh, he, he did some work on Faulkner's books, and he said that Faulkner was so delighted that one of his, his novels came out, and at the end of a month... He had received seven letters from people who had written to him, and uh, you know, then thousands had read his book. But it was the seven people who wrote to him that delighted him, and that's that's unusual. In fact, uh, getting seven letters is a lot of letters for a writer. That would surprise you, because people tend to write to the Johnny Carsons, or they'll write to a program, they'll write to a star. But a writer, they don't. Once in a great while, he'll get a letter from a, an institution who want to who want to republish it, or somebody wants them, wants them to be, I'll get a letter from a panel. They're, they're putting together a panel of uh, people who uh, write about the humor and uh, that kind of stuff. But I got a letter from somebody about this, this particular short story, and it was written to me from a kid in England who had read this short story about the 4th of July in Playboy magazine. And he had taken history, of course, in England. Well, now their view of the <laughs> of the war for independence, as you could see, would be totally different than ours. And he was amazed. He's, he he got this this read this story, and he wrote me this long letter about how how uh, he had never heard of anything like that. He didn't know anything about our you know Fourth of July celebration. They hear. Uh, you know they hear little things about once in a while, but they don't they don't appreciate the, the the feeling. You know the curious feeling you have about it as Americans. I'm not talking about patriotism. It's just a folk thing. And so he said he read this story with, in class, and it was in an English high school. And he said there were 35 kids in England sitting there and hearing this story about the Fourth of July explosion. And he said after it was all over, the the professor or the teacher then talked to him about the 4th of July, what it was about, and about what the roundhouse is, and about people who work in the steel mills and so forth. They have none of that, hardly any of that in England. But the, there's a little postscript to it. You want to hear it? Uh, I idly stirred my third bloody Charlie, as off in the middle distance another muffled blast balloomed and jiggled the bottles behind the beer. Kissel faded back into the landscape, and I expansively chewed at a cashew nut as I vainly struggled to return to the here and now. After all, fireworks, we all know, are dangerous and childish playthings that have no place in the hard-hitting, on-the-go male's life of today. A passing cab sent a reflected shaft of light 
across the mirror behind the bar. It broke into a thousand colors amid the bottles, and subtly I was reminded of yet another historic moment in the annals of the 4th of July. Those colored lights reminded me irresistibly of my father and the time the Roman candle struck back. The Roman... You know what a Roman candle is, any of you? Uh, you'd be surprised at the number of people who don't know what it was, uh, really don't know what that means. The Roman candle is a truly noble and inspired piece of the pyrotechnician's art. They are beautiful. A long, slender wand that spews forth colored flaming balls that arch high into the midnight sky, one after the other with magnificent effect. It is held in the hand. It is one of the few pieces of fireworks that bring out talent and skill on the part of the operator. The Roman candle is graded according to the number of fireballs it can discharge, ranging from eight to, in some cases, as high as two dozen. But those are very rare and expensive. There are few experiences, I repeat, that rival for sheer ecstatic pleasure and total unadulterated joy the feel of a Roman candle in full bloom, sending its fireballs up into the dark heavens with that distinctive plock, 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 a distinctive sound and the slight but sensual recoil as each colored light arches heavenward. My father was unquestionably one of the great Roman candle men of his time. That is, until that awful night when he met a Roman candle that was fully his match, if not more. Now, I don't have time to read the rest of it. Do I, Jerry? How much time do I have? Ah, give me roughly three minutes. All right. I won't tell you, because this is, this is quite a long uh, additional story to it, but I will, I will put it down in one brief paragraph. I'll never forget the sight of this. You know, we all have sights of our father's, uh, usually in, in some moment of defeat. We rarely remember our old man when he's made it, you know. But I remember the old man. He loved fireworks. He used to get out. And he, and since he had a fireworks stand, you see, after the stand was all done, like at midnight on the 4th of July, actually it would be the 5th by then, he would bring all the fireworks that were not sold because by state law they couldn't sell them after the 4th. He'd bring them all back. To the, in front of our house, and what he didn't sell, he'd shoot off, and of course it was fantastic. He loved this stuff. And one night, he is standing out there with his, we're going to cancel that. That will be canceled on this show. Don't look so confused. I'm the chief. Just cancel it. So that night, he stood out there with about 500 people out there, and the old man is standing with the Roman candles. He loved Roman candles. And he used to work them with great... Uh, he, he used to put body English on him. He believed he'd go, he'd wherever I his arms are going, he'd go, watch this. And it's a matter of timing. It really is, you know. And the, the better time you get with a Roman candle, the more arch you get on these things, and the higher they'll go. If you just stand there and point it to the sky, nothing. It just flies up, see. So he's standing there. He lets three of them go of this huge $2 Roman candle, a great big son of a gun of about four feet long, magnificent Roman candle, and the crowd is cheering, and I'm standing there, oh, that's my old man, that's groovy, you know, my old man is really doing it. <laughs> Up it goes, like, you see this big red ball arch 500 feet in the air, <laughs> there goes a green one, he says, watch this, I'm going to get Mars now. <laughs> He'd shoot him with the stars, <laughs> here goes another, all of a sudden it didn't do it, nothing happened, nothing came out, it was about ten balls left, you know, and it just keeps going, Shh. he goes, uh, uh. nothing, uh, uh. and all of a sudden it goes, 
made a funny sound, and it came out backwards. The ball shot out the back into the sleeve of his short sleeve Ponji shirt, which was his big groovy shirt that he got for Father's Day. The ball went right around his shoulder blades and began to burn the back of his shirt. Another one came. He took off like a shot with his Ponji shirt on fire with the, with the, with the Roman candle shooting backwards. He took off up the back steps. He went. I never saw anything. I wonder how many people have broken world records. I'm talking about running records inadvertently under the pressure of fantastic motivation. The old man must have crossed 100 yards in 30 seconds flat. Zap! He goes, wow, up the back steps. And you could hear him yelling. Into the house he goes, and you could hear the sound of this shower coming down. The shower, and the people were applauding. It was the greatest Roman candle performance they ever saw. The old man streaking through the midnight dark with the smell of lilac bushes hanging heavy, with the, with the smell of, of burnt-out firecrackers all around, and the old man streaking up the driveway with his pongee shirt trailing flame like a sop with camel that's been shot down by the red bear. These are the moments of true ecstasy. The old man did it. In the moment of his worst travail, he'd established another legend. And so tonight, the 4th of July, wherever you are, bumper to bumper day minor, hanging out there, waiting for that big moment, that big instant of revelation satori. What is the ritual about? What are celebrations about? It doesn't matter what the celebration is. The human spirit needs celebration. Looks out of the window, sucks deep at that, that Eskimo pie bar, hoping against hope that there will be a free stick and knowing damn well there won't. And so we celebrate. God knows what we celebrate, but we celebrate.